I'm reading from Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, who he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God on into the midst of Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel, and that this may be a sign among you. When your, people, when your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the, of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, and the people passed over in haste. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So last Sunday we sang a song, and it's a song that I sing fairly often. I choose it because I like it. Guide me, O my great Redeemer. But the final stanza of that song says this, When I tread the verge of Jordan... Bid my anxious fears subside, death of death, and hell's destruction land me safe on Canaan's side. So in the song, crossing Jordan becomes an analogy just for simple death. The idea that when we come to the end of our lives, we have to die, that's crossing Jordan. And the writer of this hymn is saying, when I, when I get there, when I get to that point where I'm about to cross over from this life into the next, if we have faith, or to whatever comes next, then please, don't leave me there alone. Land me safe on Canaan's side. Another example of the same genre of song would be I don't have to or won't have to cross Jordan alone with its lyric, when I come to the river at ending of day, when the last winds of sorrow have blown, there will be somebody waiting to show me the way, I won't have to cross Jordan alone. So again, an analogy for coming to the end of our life, facing death, 
and trusting that our Savior is going to be there to help us through that road. And, and that's absolutely true. I'm, I'm about to say the songs have it wrong, but the songs have it wrong because they connect this to the crossing of Jordan. Many scriptures speak of how God is present with us throughout our lives. Psalm 73 talks about how God holds us by the right hand. He guides us with his counsel and afterward receives us into glory. So we have many scriptural witnesses to this idea that God is with us in life and in death, that he guides us step by step along the way. And when we come to the end of this life, he is there to take us into glory. That's just not what this story about crossing the Jordan is really about, even though it's a relatively common theme in a lot of African-American spirituals and other gospel songs. And I get it. I understand how it became this, because somehow to many people, the idea of the promised land in the Old Testament has been equated with heaven. And the way most people ordinarily get to heaven, to the promised land in that sense, is through death. So I understand the analogy, and I like the music. The thing is, Scripture never speaks this way. In fact, when Scripture speaks of the Jordan River, which is not often outside of the book of Joshua, it's always simply as a boundary to be crossed between one piece of real estate and another, or in the case of the Gospels, it's the river into which Jesus went down to be baptized and then came up to be filled with the Spirit and engage in public ministry. So the analogy of the, the Jordan River crossing Jordan is, is, is really just a gloss that gets applied to this story to give it a poetic, symbolic kind of meaning that in the end, I think, actually leads us away from what the text actually says. Because as we considered last week, Joshua chapters 3 through 5 tell a story of something that actually happened. Something that really took place in time and in space history. They are not simply giving us a myth or a fable to which we can then apply whatever spiritualized meaning we may want to apply. There was a day when Joshua and the people of Israel stood together on the east side of the Jordan River. And on that day, when God commanded them to cross, we were told that the river was running at flood stage, possibly as much as a mile wide and very fast. Nobody could ford that river at that time. And yet God had commanded them to cross. Now what we have to remember is that the very one who commanded them to cross the river in flood stage did so for very specific reasons at a very specific time, as we're going to see a little later in the sermon this morning. He did so so that they would be ready to celebrate the Passover for the first time in their new homeland on Canaan's side on exactly the day that God had prescribed in his law word over 40 years before. So when God gave the people of Israel the Passover, he said, this month is to be the first month, month of, of all the year for you. And on the 14th day of this month, you are to slay the Passover lamb and you are to observe the Passover. And then he leads them through the wilderness 
and he brings them to the river at exactly the time they need to arrive there in order to cross so that when everything else that we're going to look at this morning is done, they would be ready to observe the Passover. He brought them to this place not to give us an analogy of death and entry into heaven, but to show us that the living God himself is ready to conquer all obstacles that prevent his people from entering into the inheritance that he promised by covenant oath to their father Abraham. That's why Joshua said, Behold, the Ark of the Covenant. Ark is just a box. It's, it's, it's not anything special. But the box containing the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into Jordan. Not only did they not have to cross Jordan alone, they could not cross Jordan alone, and as we'll see, neither can we. And just as Joshua, the leader of God's people, was a type in the Old Testament of the greater Joshua, Joshua Christ, as we noted a couple of weeks back, Jesus Christ our Lord, the ark, which was merely a copy and a shadow of heavenly things, was also a type of something greater. In that gold-plated box, the Ark of the Covenant, were the stone tablets of the law, written by the finger of God himself. And when they sat in the tabernacle, once a year, the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement, and he would sprinkle the blood of the covenant on the mercy seat that covered the top of the Ark. This was the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that went before his people down into the Jordan, leading them into the Promised Land. But the writer to the Hebrews said of that old covenant, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So when that lesser ark went down into the river and delivered the people through, safe to Canaan's side, that was not the rest that God's people have been looking for. That was not the city whose builder and architect is God. It was something lesser. And then along came the greater Joshua, Jesus Christ our Lord, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant. But the new covenant cannot be contained in the ark, and it cannot be ratified with the blood of bulls or goats. Instead, Jesus said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So just as the old covenant people of God could not cross Jordan alone, they could not enter into that land, that inheritance that God had promised. We too cannot cross Jordan. We cannot enter into our inheritance. We cannot enter into the Sabbath rest that God has prepared for us alone. We cannot achieve our salvation by our own works or thoughts or a faith that we gin up somehow within ourselves. We need Jesus Christ in whose blood is the new covenant to pass through before us and to make a way. Just as the writer of the Hebrews said in chapter 4 verse 14, we have a great high priest. Not one who has passed through the Jordan, but one who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. And he alone can bring us into the inheritance that God has promised to his people. For he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. 
So then the writer of the Hebrews says, let us hold fast our confession. Even though we haven't received as yet everything that God has promised, let us hold fast our confession. And there are some things that we can learn about this from the people of Israel, because having crossed the Jordan, God did not lead them straight into battle. God did not send some sort of a wave of power that annihilated all of the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, and the rest of them so that the people could just walk in unopposed and settle down in their new home. He led them instead to stay there by the Jordan River for a few days because there were things that needed to happen before they faced the walls of Jericho. Martha read of one of those for us in our text this morning, chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight." Now to us, that may seem like an odd thing to do. Why grab some stones, probably large stones? By no man, they were probably competing to see who could carry the biggest of the 12 out of the Jordan River and lay it down there beside. But these stones weren't just a contest or some silly thing. They had a purpose. Verse 20 of Joshua chapter 4, And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground. I just want to pause for a moment because last week we talked about how this event was a miracle. It was something that only God could do. And he did it in such a way that his people would see his power. Some have suggested, well, there's a place farther north along the Jordan where occasionally an earthquake will cause a landslide and the water will stop flowing. But I feel like if the people were standing there on the east side of the river and watching as the flow gradually subsided down to nothing, they might wonder, well, how did that happen? But if as God commanded, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant approached the Jordan in flood stage, and at the very moment that they touched the sole of their foot to the water, the river was cut off from above and flowing beneath, and immediately the ground was dry, and they were able to cross over on dry ground. Well, that's something special. That's something worth commemorating. That's why... God instructed Joshua to build this cairn with these 12 stones so that in years to come when the children of Israel and their children's children and the next generation beyond that would ask, what do these stones mean? Their parents could say, the people of Israel crossed the Jordan River on dry ground because the Lord held back the flood. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. And here's why. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. 
If this was something that was accomplished through an earthquake and a landslide, then all the peoples of the nations, all the peoples of the land are just going to say, well, that was, that was an amazing coincidence. Isn't it neat or scary that that happened for the people of Israel? But because God dried up the river, he caused the waters to cease to flow. You actually read in the very next chapter how the leaders of the Canaanites and of the Philistines over on the coast and all those nations who knew their time was limited began to fear and tremble before the God of Israel because he was fighting for his people. In other words, for the people who set out to conquer the land in Joshua's day for their children and for all the peoples of the earth, these stones were to be a memorial of the power and glory of the living God displayed in the deliverance of his people, first from Egypt and then from the wilderness. Twelve stones from the middle of the river, one for each of the twelve tribes, as a memorial forever of the covenant-keeping God. But there was more. Joshua 5, verses 2 and 3. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of of Israel at Gibeath Haratalath. Now I just want to say a second time. That's not a second time for any individual person, um, which would not be possible. That is, they were circumcised after they left Egypt, And then during all the years of their wilderness wanderings, they were not. And now the nation is being brought back into this renewal of the covenant at this time. Now, less delicate scholars just go ahead and translate Gibeah Haraloth, which in Hebrew literally means the hill of the foreskins. Um, I'm pretty sure that's not on any of the Holy Land tours or maps. It's probably not something you can find these days. But for whatever reason, we can only speculate what the reason was. The people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. They had not received the sign and seal of God's covenant with their father Abraham in the wilderness, but now they were to receive it. The whole nation meaning every male from eight days to 40 years old received that old covenant sign of circumcision, the literal putting off of the body of flesh. And only then when they were healed did the Lord say to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal, which sounds like the Hebrew for to roll to this very day. But there's still more. Having set up the cairn of stones as a memorial, having had the covenant renewed and the reproach of Egypt rolled away, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. As I mentioned, which I mentioned earlier, was exactly the time that God had commanded it to be kept. So for 40 years, God was leading them through the wilderness. And he not only brought them into the land as he had promised long before to Abraham their father, he brought them to the land at exactly the time that was required 
so that once the memorial had been built and the circumcision had been done and the reproach of Egypt had been finally rolled away, on that very day they could slay the Passover lamb and they could eat the covenant meal of the Lord their God, remembering and believing that everything that had happened All of the things that they might have regarded as good, the manna from heaven and the water from the rock, and all of the things that they might have regarded as bad, everything had unfolded in exactly the way that it needed to unfold by the power, the glory, and the faithfulness of the living God. He was speaking particularly of the stones, but his idea applies to all three of these memorials. Commentator James Montgomery Boyce wrote, the people needed a memorial because... Like ourselves, they tended to forget the goodness and mighty acts of God on their behalf. Just ask yourself if you've ever been sitting there watching a newscast or reading something on the internet about how horrible the world we live in has become and forgotten the mighty, powerful acts of our good God. Because I think this tendency to forget God's goodness and his power is similar to what the author of our Belgic Confession was speaking about when he wrote of the sacraments. We believe that our good God, mindful of our crudeness and weakness. I need to stop for just a second here and emphasize something. There's been a tendency in some churches to assume that the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, were a privilege that you had to earn by proving that you had a full understanding of all of the theology of the church. But the theology of the church teaches the opposite. That our good God, mindful of our crudeness and weakness, has ordained sacraments for us to seal his promises to us, to pledge his goodwill and grace toward us, and also to nourish and sustain our faith. He has added these to the word of the gospel to represent better to our external senses both what he enables us to understand by his word and what he does inwardly in our hearts, confirming in us the salvation he imparts to us. In other words, just as God gave memorials of his power and his goodness to the people of Israel, he has given us memorials. Signs and seals of the new covenant in Christ so that we can always remember and believe that by the blood of Jesus, the mediator of this new and better covenant, we have confidence to enter the holy places. Not just to cross Jordan, and land safe on Canaan's side, but to enter the presence of God himself, and not just at death when we go to heaven, but even now, every time we approach the throne of grace by prayer and faith, we approach by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So just as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth went down into the Jordan to make a way into the promised land for Israel, even so Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord and our Savior, was crucified. And he went down into the grave and then he arose victorious over death and hell to, as the carol reminds us, make safe for us the heavenward road and bar the way to death's abode. 
to make it possible for us to make our way toward the living God without fear of wrath and judgment. We remember this in the sacrament of Holy Communion, the new covenant Passover, when we partake by faith, remembering and believing that the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was given for the complete forgiveness of all of our sins. This new covenant Passover that we celebrate usually about once a month is actually the fulfillment of that old covenant Passover, the substance of which was only a shadow. They came to a sign looking ahead to something that had not happened yet. We come to this table looking back at a fixed reality our Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us and for our salvation. We also remember this in baptism, which the Apostle Paul refers to in the book of Colossians as a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which also you are raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Christian baptism is a covenantal equivalent of Old Covenant circumcision. Again, Abraham was instructed, circumcise every male born into your house. And the people of Israel were given that commandment at Sinai as well. But it was a bloody ritual, a, a ritual that involved shedding of blood. And it looked ahead to when Christ would shed his blood so that we could be set free from the tyranny of the devil and from our sin, now we have baptism, which is the fulfillment of that old covenant sign, which looks back to the reality that Christ has died. Christ has given himself for our sin, and he has risen, and when he was raised up, we were raised up together with him and seated with him in heavenly places. As we confess once again in the Belgic confession, having abolished circumcision which was done with blood, God established in its place the sacrament of baptism. By it we are received into God's church and set apart from all other people and alien religions that we may be dedicated entirely to him bearing his mark and sign. Just as God rolled away the reproach of the nation of Israel when they crossed the Jordan and had that second experience of kind of a national circumcision, God testifies in baptism that he has rolled away the reproach of the world and he has brought us into his kingdom and has set us apart from all other people and alien religions. Finally, the stones. Twelve stones one for each of the 12 tribes that God in his faithfulness had brought through the Jordan and into the promised land. Now, I can't be dogmatic about this part, so if you want to argue, I'm willing to listen. But in 1 Corinthians 10, we're told that our fathers all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. I just want to also point out, Paul is writing to a bunch of Gentiles at Corinth, and yet he looks back at the old covenant, at those people that God brought out of Egypt through the Red Sea, through the Jordan, into that land. And he says, they were our fathers, and they are our fathers too. 
And they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. This was and is and always will be true. Christ is a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Peter wrote that. And with the very next stroke of his pen, he said, Now you yourselves, Christians, you, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But we don't need stone cairns anymore. We don't even need cathedrals as beautiful as some of them are. We don't need altars and monuments to make us remember the goodness and the power of our God. Every one of us here who by faith has been brought from darkness into light, we are living stones. We, the church of Jesus Christ, we are the memorial. We don't look to a building or to a cairn by the river or even to the cross on the wall. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his spirit who dwells within those who have come to him by faith and who himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Ultimately, the sacraments and the memorials of the Old Covenant were memorials in advance. They were signs looking ahead and leading down a long road to Jesus Christ, the true son and seed of Abraham. And the sacraments of the New Covenant, those are there to make sure that we who have come to him by faith never forget that our salvation and deliverance are only by the grace of our good God, given to us through his son, Jesus Christ. When I was talking to Matt, as we were studying together for this sermon, I said, you know, if you go south of High River and start driving north, you'll see signs that say, High River, so many miles. High River, so many miles. And if you go north of town and start driving south, you'll see the same thing. High River, so many miles. Or turn here if you want to go to High River. The one place where you will not see at least traffic signs giving directions to High River is right here in town. So think of those old covenant signs and seals as looking north from the south, so to speak and directing those old covenant people to Jesus Christ. And think of the signs and seals, the sacraments of the new covenant as looking south from the north, reminding us that the reality, the center, is in Christ. Sometimes we've had this idea that, you know, we're on this timeline, and they were headed toward Jesus, and then Jesus came, and, well, that would mean we're headed away from him, which is not true. 
Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, was the destination for God's people in the Old Covenant. It is our destination today. The signs and seals, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, the fact that we gather together from week to week as living stones built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, set apart to offer spiritual sacrifices to God, all of these things are meant to make us remember Jesus Christ is the end of that road. And when we remember this, when we truly believe this, then in him, in Christ, we are part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And then, like that heap of stones beside the Jordan River that Joshua put there all those years ago so that the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, God has gathered us together into the church and he has set us apart by word and sacrament to belong to him so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You as living stones are the memorial today that says to the world, the hand of the Lord is mighty. And so once again, as we have said with every single lighting of the Advent candle from week to week through this Advent season, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. May we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and grace. Of course, by grace alone that we have been set apart to belong to you through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's by grace alone that you have brought us into your kingdom. And we thank you as well, Father, although we may tremble with fear before you, for the reality that as living stones you have built us into a spiritual house, a memorial, the work of Christ in our lives so that the people of the world may see. Just as Jesus commanded us to do our good works so that the people around would see and give glory to you, our Father in heaven, Lord. Help us to so live and to so speak and to so behave in this world that those who do not know you yet may see may be drawn to Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, may believe and be saved, we pray in his holy name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship again, singing, Let all mortal flesh keep silence.